take our Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Why do bad things happen? Why is there tragedy? Why do we see tragedy take place, especially uh, we see it when it happens to people trying to do the right things or even doing the right things? How could God allow or even decree tragedy? And the fact that there is tragedy is clear or that bad things happen is part of our experience. No one denies this. We recognize that tragedy takes place as part of the human experience. It's rare in a person's life to not experience it or at least witness others experiencing tragedy. And just to simply be human means that you've experienced tragedy since we constantly and continually see warring of nation against nation. The difficult thing for the Christian is to ask the question, why? Because we have a Bible that tells us that God is in control, that God is absolutely in control, that God is sovereign, which means God rules over all things. We see that the Bible also teaches us that God has planned all things that happen, that he is absolutely in control, that nothing happens outside of his own will. We also see scripture teaches, though, that in that there is an ultimate good. That it happens for God's glory, that all things are working for God's glory. We see that scripture tells us that God is compassionate, that he is kind in all of his works. In fact, I opened the service this morning with Psalm 145 that speaks of God's works and how great God's works are and how kind God's works are. And it follows the verses of his kindness and his good works by stating that we have tragedy in our life. Nothing we see in Scripture happens in vain. But how is this reconciled with human tragedy that we experience? As we look to Acts chapter 8, we, we see a shift in the narrative where we move from Stephen to now Philip, and we get to see a glimpse of God's providence unfolding with good resulting from tragedy. Where we see and we're able to witness how God brings not only just good, but He brings the greatest thing that could happen out of the worst thing that could happen. In these eight verses, verses 1 through 8, you'll notice that we will see murder, we will see extreme persecution. We will see mourning and sorrow. And if you look at verse 8, we see it all concludes with joy. We don't always get to see it unfold like this. But these verses teach us that God does indeed bring good out of tragedy. Let us hear the word of God in verse 1, chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This, this text really breaks up into two primary points. The first section is persecution and the second s- section is proclamation. The proclamation follows the persecution. So let us look at the persecution. Verse 1 sets the scene which is flowing out of the previous narrative where they have stoned Stephen. They have executed Stephen. And then you read in verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And now because we know the story of Saul, that he turns to Paul, his name is changed to Paul when he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. These should be shocking words to the Christian that knows the story of Saul, that Saul approved of his execution. That is an illegal execution built upon lies and false witnesses. When you look at that phrase approved, oftentimes in the King James, that word is translated in other places, took pleasure. He approved, he took pleasure in great wickedness of murder, of lying, of basically disregarding the law of God. He approves of it. He approves of rejecting God's word. Violence was in his heart. Violence ruled his heart. Saul was a wicked man. He was an evil man. And the result of this execution was a releasing of the floodgates of persecution. You'll notice what it says. And it arose on that day great persecution against the church. Oftentimes we hear of the phrase persecution, we're being persecuted. We have not experienced this here in the United States. Not even close. And Stephen and his execution was the spark that lit the flame of violence against the church in Jerusalem. But it also lit another flame. You'll notice the phrase, They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. One commentator says it was like taking seeds and throwing them across the land. The church once was concentrated in Jerusalem. It's now forced to flee Jerusalem. One commentator says the taste of blood maddened the people as wild beasts. And so the people leave their homes they leave all that they knew they're forced to leave or perhaps they 
If they stay, they'll meet the same fate as Stephen, so they flee Jerusalem. Notice it says they were all scattered. This doesn't mean literally every single Christian left Jerusalem. Later in the book of Acts, you'll find that Christians are are still meeting in Jerusalem. There's still many Christians in Jerusalem at this time. This is just saying that the, the vast majority of Christians began to escape Jerusalem. They began to leave. They were fleeing the area, except for we see, except the apostles. And the apostles stay behind because they still had people to care for, to minister to. They, they still had to shepherd the flock. But it does bring up a good question. If you wanted to If you wanted to end the church in Jerusalem, the best people to go after would have been the apostles. So why don't they go after the apostles after they've gone after Stephen? It's because the apostles were were leaders of the church, but they were well-respected, they were well-known. It would not have been easy for them to just go after the apostles. Later they do. But just to go after him here, it would have been difficult for them to carry that out. So they go after lesser known Christians. And so the apostles stay behind. And I think this speaks of their understanding of their apostolic role in the church. That they needed to shepherd the flock and they do not abandon their people when the people are persecuted, but they stand there with them. One, one thinks of Diedrich Bonhoeffer who escaped Nazi Germany only to return and be executed eventually because of his plot in Operation Valkyrie. But he said, I can't leave my people. He understood his role as a pastor to people. And so murder takes place and it leads to this massive persecution. Which you'll notice leads to great lamentation in verse two. It says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. This is an incredibly important verse. Especially in, in, in how we think through issues of how Christians live in an unjust society that is ruled with corrupt leaders. Notice what it says. It says, devout men buried Stephen. People are divided, commentators are divided if this was speaking of Christians or Jews that were sympathetic, but it's most likely Christians that go and bury Stephen. Now, burial of a criminal was was legal. So Stephen was viewed by the Sanhedrin as a criminal, one that was guilty of blasphemy, although they didn't ever actually give him a a verdict in that. They, They just... Uh, overran with emotion and rage decided to stone him but it was allowed for you to bury a criminal but you'll notice the phrase and they made a great lamentation over him this was not allowed this was against jewish law so what i mean is that you could not lament over someone that had been stoned to death because stoning was the result of blasphemy You were not allowed to lament over a blasphemer. That sounds strange that we can't mourn. To say that it's illegal to mourn, it doesn't mean that they they couldn't mourn inwardly, but they could not lament. And this is a specific word which is speaking of something outwardly taking place. 
So the Jewish law would not allow this outward lamentation to take place. It's a significant word. It's only used here in the New Testament, and it refers to something more than sorrow. And this is why it's so crucial for us to to understand what's taking place here. It's the beating of one's chest. It's a very demonstrative action of lamentation. It's something that would be observable by others. So what's taking place here when it says they made great lamentation over him is on the one hand, they're honoring Stephen. They're honoring him in his death. But on the other hand, they're showing defiance to the Sanhedrin. They're saying publicly, we don't agree with your decision You have killed an innocent man. So when it says there was great lamentation, it's speaking of a very public protest by the people. These devout men stand publicly in solidarity with Stephen. And they very publicly identify themselves with him. And by doing this great lamentation, they're disregarding what? The law of the land. And why? It's fairly obvious, isn't it? A man had been murdered. And so what is this that they're doing? They're challenging the leaders publicly. They're saying, we don't agree. We protest you. And this is the right thing to do, right? It's an honorable thing for these devout men to do this. But it's also risky. It's also risky for them to do this because we've already read that there's great persecution. So it's like these two things. Verse 1 of great persecution rising that day. And verse 2, there's great lamentation in the burial of Stephen. Are descriptions of things happening at the same time. While there is persecution arising in Jerusalem at the same time, they're doing this public protest against the wrongful death of Stephen. So it's very risky for them to do this. This could impact their home life. This could impact their job. It could certainly impact their social standing. It could impact all aspects of their life. But we have to note this is that in times of persecution, It is often dangerous to do the right thing, isn't it? It's dangerous to stand up and do what is right. And also this is that protest at times is necessary. Protest at times is necessary, but we have to remember the context is that a man had died, accused of something he had not done, They killed him outside of a real court decision. And so the people protest it, but you'll notice that they don't go and destroy Jerusalem when they do it. They say, we don't agree with this injustice that's taken place. Now to emphasize the danger that they put themselves in, look at verse 3. Because it shows us how great the the persecution was it says but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison it really reads like when you read verse 3 like Hitler's uh, SS systematically eliminating any opposition 
going home to home and 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 wiping out anyone that might oppose them except for this isn't hitler this is saul it says he's ravaging the church it's very descriptive word it's used of an animal tearing the flesh of another animal he's trying to destroy the church and notice the systematic nature of it is he goes in house after house he's going into people's private property into their homes and he's going into their homes and he's ripping the men and women out of their homes. He's, he's flushing out Christians by this systematic manner of destruction. It says he, he dragged off men and women and committed them to, to prison. And the mention here in the text that he's doing this to women also is showing the cruelty of Saul. Shows the depth of depravity that is taking place, that he's ripping people from their homes, removing them from their belongings, maybe even from their children who now are left alone. Whole families are violently put in prison, drug off. It's in their homes that this takes place, the safest place that you could be, the comfort of your home. Home now becomes a place of fear. Here comes Saul as people are just living their life, trying to live a peaceful life in their homes. But the problem is, is Jesus is Lord of these homes. And Saul cannot stand it. The Jewish leaders cannot stand it. So they go to these home churches, they go to these homes and they go after them. They've broken no Roman law. These Christians are striving for peace, which is the desire of the Christian life, isn't it? That we strive for peace with our neighbor, strive for peace with those around us. I want you to look at what happens. We find out later on in Paul's testimony of this in Acts chapter 22, where Paul describes it later. He says, I persecuted this way that was what Christians were called. They were called part of the way. I persecuted this way to the death. Look at how he describes what he does. He says, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness with me. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul Paul was just scattering the whole land looking for Christians to arrest them and to ultimately have them executed. In chapter 26, verse 10, Paul says this, and he says, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul was a wicked man. And the picture is dark of what's taking place. We just are looking at these glimpses of what, what he gives in his testimony to see what was it like to be a Christian in Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen. That's what it would have been like. People coming into your home, ripping you out of your home, men and women being carted off to prison, many of them being executed, and the young Pharisee, Saul himself, 
is there casting his vote against you of whether you can live or die, Saul would say, you must die. That, that's what it would have been like. So it's a horrible scene. And it also shows us the, the, the restraint that once was formally there is now gone. And you remember at the beginning of the book of Acts, there's primarily the Sadducees that were against them. Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, said, let's show restraint. Saul was a student of Gamaliel. He obviously is no longer showing restraint, but now you have all of the leaders as one voice against the Christians. They're all in the mix in this persecution. And they're led by the zealous Saul of Damascus. Imagine this never left Saul's memory. I, I don't know how it could. You, you can imagine that, that, as, that as the Apostle Paul closed his eyes to sleep at night, he could still st see Stephen there staring up at him. He could probably see the men and women he drug from their homes violently and had executed. I think that's why he writes this. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Certainly, when we say that we apply that to ourselves, we never committed the treacherous acts that Saul did. He was a violent terrorist of Christians. But doesn't it teach us something about God's grace and God's providence? Saul was the personification of persecution. Had he not become a Christian, we would be looking back on Saul as we would of any great, horrible, wicked leaders. He was the face of terror, the embodiment of unrestrained violence. And God in his mercy saves him. God says the guy that's doing the most damage, that's the guy that I have chosen. You know, this teaches us never to give up evangelizing the most unlikely to convert, doesn't it? Is that we never give up evangelizing. Because you never know when a Saul is going to turn into a Paul. Now, what happens with this tragedy? Can we agree this is a tragedy that's taking place? Persecution in this situation leads not to silencing of the church, but to proclamation. And we see that tragedy itself is leading to something greater. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They're not silent. And this is the unintended consequences of persecution. They were hoping that these Christians, they'll certainly be quiet once we start killing them, but they don't. They get spread everywhere and they continue to preach the word. Look at verse 5. It says they paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard him. And then you look at the final verse in verse 8. There was much joy. There was proclamation taking place. 
There was preaching taking place. There was sharing of the faith taking place that good is coming out of this tragedy, the tragedy of Stephen and the tragedy of the men and women that have been ripped from their homes, thrown in prison, and many killed, is that there is good coming out of this. Now, it's important to see evangelism is not taking place from the apostles. No one is specified in who is doing this evangelism. Verse 1 says, you'll notice, they were all scattered. Verse 4 tells us, what did those who were scattered do? It tells us what they did, and it tells us that they preached the word. And this isn't speaking of formal sermons, but it's that they are sharing the word of God. And what was that word? Well, they, they had the Old Testament. That's all they had. And so they're sharing the Old Testament scriptures and how the Old Testament scriptures find their fulfillment in the Messiah. They are showing Jesus is the Messiah promised in the scripture. In fact, when you look at verse 25, that tells us exactly what they were teaching. It says, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The spread of the gospel is not taking place through ordained pastors, but through the laity. And this gives us some, some incredible insight, doesn't it? But it's also some practical insight because you notice what they did. They, they, they fled from Jerusalem. These people have fled persecution. Fleeing oftentimes is equated with cowardice, but this is not cowardice. Sometimes fleeing a place is just being smart. And that's exactly what this is. What would be cowardice, though, is if they had fled and remained silent. But they don't. They take their message with them. They take their message with them. Sometimes it is best to flee a place. And many are fleeing our state. And sometimes maybe that is best. What we have to consider, though, is what takes place here. If we flee a place, but we're not taking consideration of what we're gonna, where we're going to land and how we tr contribute to the kingdom of God, we're not doing it right. They fled because they were experiencing true persecution people were dying and the first thing they do is when they leave is they are preaching the word that is ongoing preaching of the laity not the apostles it doesn't say anything of, of ordained pastors it's just the people are going there and preaching and by the way that's the most effective evangelism they are not sharing their personal testimonies they are sharing the word of god and the people are doing it i wonder what things would look like if every christian was committed to sharing the faith with just one person in the course of a year you might say wow a year is a long time i hope we would share our faith more than once a year
when was the last time you shared the faith, the gospel message in the last year? I think if we ask that to congregations all throughout this land, we would be shocked by the results. Could you imagine if we just shared the faith with our own home? What would happen? Let's hope it doesn't take persecution to awaken the church to share the faith. Not everyone is gifted with the gift of evangelism, but that doesn't mean every Christian cannot articulate their faith. As Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Some are, are gifted by God's grace, especially for this task. In fact, we see that in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Now, Philip is one of the seven that we were introduced to in chapter 6, and he's the only person in Scripture given the title of evangelist. In fact, Acts 21, 8 says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist. Philip is known as an evangelist, and he's the only one given that title in Scripture. So he's obviously remarkably gifted with evangelism. Not everyone is gifted like he is. But he is an evangelist. He takes the word of God to Samaria. And he's doing this just as Jesus had instructed the apostles to do when he said, but when you receive power from the Holy Spirit and it has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now the Jews hated the Samaritans. They would not want to associate with them. But now Philip, like the Samaritans, has been excluded from temple worship, excluded from Jerusalem. And so he goes to his fellow rejects to share the good news to all people. The world rejects the Christian. He goes to those that have also been rejected and shares the good news of Christ. Stephen knows God, or Philip knows God does not dwell in a building made by human hands. And so we see the temple is fading out of the picture in the book of Acts. And the true temple, Christ, is proclaimed. And Isaiah foresaw this day when there would be those going in to Samaria and sharing the good news and setting the captives free and Isaiah 9, in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nathali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And Philip is the one that has been... Uh, assigned this of showing the light to Samaria. And it's significant that he goes there because Jesus had said this in Matthew 10, 5, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
And so they're now no longer excluded. And Philip leads the charge into Samaria somewhat by uh, force because he's forced to flee, but he takes the message with him. And we have to see what happens here and that this way for Philip had been prepared by the Lord Jesus. And we see a glimpse of this in verse 6 and 7. It says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. They're listening to him. And there's accompanying signs that take place. And the description of those is in verse 7. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And now we just have to take a note about the miraculous nature of what's taking place and, and see a pattern that takes place in the book of Acts that helps us understand the significance of these miraculous events that are unique to the book of Acts and to the book of Acts alone. In Acts chapter 8, verse 16, it says, For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands, their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the apostles who come into Samaria after they are told that the Samaritans have received Christ. They come in, they lay hands on them, and then they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 10, verse 44, it speaks of the Holy Spirit falling upon the Gentiles and the subsequent things that take place as a result of that. So what you have here is that in Jerusalem, there's the miraculous that takes place with the Holy Spirit. Samaria, there's the miraculous that takes place with the Holy Spirit after they have believed. And then again, with the Gentiles, the same thing happens. And then if you go over to chapter 19, you see the final key to this is the disciples of John the Baptist in uh, Ephesus. Now they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and there are subsequent signs that take place. So what's happening in this pattern? Well, what did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Where did he say to go? Go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, and go to the ends of the earth. That was accomplished. And with each group, there was a confirmation that the gospel had reached the nations, just as Jesus said there would. And so when we look at the all like lightning from heavens. And then in chapter 11 of Luke, he goes on to say this in verse 21. He says, or verse 20, but if it is the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So when does Jesus say the kingdom of God has come? Right then. He goes on to say, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. This is speaking of Jesus binding the armed man, the strong man. And after this, it's interesting, is that Jesus starts to speak of the Samaritans in a positive light. The good Samaritan, the ten lepers, only a Samaritan returns to thank the Lord Jesus. What is Jesus doing in the book of Luke? He's preparing 
for their future mission. And there's something we have to understand so clearly is Satan does not have the power to deceive the nations. It was crushed in the resurrection. What once blinded the eyes of the Samaritans has been bound. Now, you might say, doesn't that mean that Satan uh, is he's, he's not working? No, of course he's working. He's alive and well. He's wrecking havoc wherever he goes. But it is to say that he no longer can blind the nations. That's why we are given the Great Commission. If he was able to blind the nations, we would not be given the Great Commission because the Great Commission is to do what? Go into the nations. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, makes this so clear. It says in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so the Samaritans, no longer blinded, received the gospel. And look at the result. Verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Now in these eight verses, there's three words that are described with the adjective great it's persecution lamentation and joy it says there was great persecution against the church they made a great lamentation and there was much joy which can also be translated great As the dividing wall of hostility is removed, salvation is received, and joy is experienced. And it was God's plan. It involved tragedy, it involved suffering, it involved pain, but it ended in joy. We we don't always get to see the result as we do here, but it reminds us And teaches us the truth that God is working even in the midst of tragedy. You see, persecution and murder scatters the church, but it does not stop the church from doing its work. As King Jesus continues to pour out His Spirit, the church continues to grow. And this never ceases. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to build the church until I don't feel like it anymore or until things get rough for you guys. You see, we we have two parallel things taking place is that you see an increase of opposition to the church, but you still see an increase in the church running parallel at the same time because Jesus promises that. And persecution doesn't grow the church. We often say that, but we should think through that more clearly. Preaching the word is what grows the church. That's how Christ grows the church. And it's also not true that that necessarily because of persecution, the church will grow. That's just historically not accurate. Now, does the church grow in in, in persecution? In many cases, yes. Look look in China. China. Under the dictatorship of Mao Zedong, Christians were, were... 
uh, they attempted to wipe out Christianity. Now, now China is one of the fastest growing Christian places in the world, the Middle East. Christians are booming there. But that's not always guaranteed. Look at Japan. Japan was once a very heavily evangelized place and great persecution took place. Uh, the Japanese people are still considered a lost people group. So it's just not it's just not true that because there's persecution means there's going to be a growth in the church. But it does mean that the church is going to spread and it's going to be scattered and we will see that growth there. But it's the preaching of the word. That takes place and this may not have happened apart from. The persecution. That they were forced to leave Jerusalem, they were comfortable there. But opposition became opportunity. And sometimes we know that it just simply means that when when a place has been heavily evangelized, remember the growth of the church, that, that sometimes a change needs to take place. A number of years ago, I was preaching in John, and I came to these verses in chapter 10, verse 40. It says, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What's interesting, if you just back up a verse, it says they were trying to kill him. He crosses the river and all of a sudden, all of these people believe upon him. And I remember reading, it's always stuck with me, something Charles Spurgeon said. He says, sometimes a ministry in a, in a certain location it, it, it just kind of fizzles out and you go across the street and all of a sudden there's just a great awakening again. And that's precisely what was happening in Jerusalem is that they had had this massive growth and then persecution arises and it stops. They go across the street, so to speak, and you see massive conversions taking place again that's what happens oftentimes but what we see here is that things in life may begin with tragedy but it doesn't end with tragedy does it and that's because god is working for his glory and he is working according to his purposes for the good of his people and christ will continue to build his church Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of your gospel, that Jesus reigns and will reign for all of eternity.